0: Okay, if you will take out your insert that says the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. That's what we're talking about today. Now, in this insert on the inside is Revelation 6 and 7. I ambitiously thought we would get through all of this text. And this morning at about 6 a.m., my wife said, Honey, how's it going? And I said, I "I don't think we can get through all of it. And she said, Wisely, well, don't try. (laughs) Instead of running as fast as you can and dying at the finish line, breathless, let's just... Let it go a little bit slower. So actually, we're just going to look at Revelation 6 today. And since Taylor's getting knee surgery this Thursday, and he'll be out for several weeks, I'm not messing up his preaching schedule. So we'll just slow it down a little bit. We're only looking at Revelation 6 today. And the opening, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, of the seven seals. Actually, only six of them are in Revelation 6, and the seventh comes later. We'll get to that down the road. Now, we're getting into the, really into the heart of the visions of Revelation now as we're going to go through this book. And uh, it's, it's a good time for me to say something like this. Revelation is meant to be helpful to the people of God. In Revelation 1-3, we're told that we are blessed if we read it if we hear it and if we do it or if we hold to it, if we respond to it, it's something that the people in the first century were expected to be able to respond to. It's to be a helpful book for the people who first heard it and for the people down through the ages and for the people in this room. It's to be a helpful book. But something happened on the way to Revelation being a helpful book. And that thing happened in this country, really in church history, a few years ago there was a movement that began to read the book of Revelation in such a way that wanted to push almost all of it off to the future. And in the same movement, it kind of, if you will, unhooked Revelation from the rest of the Bible, from the the Old Testament, where Revelation draws almost all of its images from, on all of its metaphors and all of its pictures from It, it. It decoupled Revelation from the rest of the Bible, from the Old Testament. And in so doing, this this form of literature in the Old Testament, which we call maybe apocalyptic, you see it in the prophets, like in Daniel, which is highly sim- symbolical, highly uh, highly image driven, very texturally rich, and aesthetically orally full, uh, began to become read very literally and literalistically and woodenly and linearly, and so this, uh, and it, that was a way. That started in America and then has basically stayed in America and into the place that our missionaries have exported it. I just want you to know that was unknown in history until about the Civil War of our time. In fact, it wasn't the first sort of official beginning of this was what's called the Niagara Creed of 1878. Okay, so that is in in church history and Bible interpretation. That is a baby. That's brand new in history. Like, we're in an old story, right? 1878 was just a few years ago. Uh, But it took off, maybe because when it's all in the future, it allows more speculation, and you can make cool movies about it, and it's more sensationalized, and, you know, you can sell more books if you're just speculating, just making stuff up, and maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's this person. Um, Now, you might be saying, well, I've never heard of that. I don't think I've bought into that. I've never heard of that. And I just want to ask you a couple questions, okay? I'm really not trying to alienate anybody here. But I do want everybody to be good biblical theologians and historically wise. Have you heard of the concept of, now some, if you're not from a church background, this might be totally foreign to you, totally get that. But if you've been sort of in the church world for a while, this might seem somewhat familiar. Have you heard of a concept of the rapture? Where God zips people out and then he keeps doing stuff on earth for a long time. That's from that school of thought. So I'm going to just billboard something here. I do not believe there is a rapture. Taylor does not believe there is a rapture, right? That's correct, right? Why? Nobody believed in that until 1878, guys. Does that mean I don't believe the Bible? No, we let the Bible be the Bible. Okay. Now I realize I came from a background where that statement, the only response to that would be, well, you're not a Christian. Are you a Christian? Do you believe the Bible? Right? It's, um, this school of thought is well-meaning, and it has a very high view of the Bible, but a high view of the Bible that reads it the wrong way just means you're very confident in reading it the wrong way. Uh, you may have heard that there will be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth. Where the the Gentile churches in heaven and the Jewish churches on earth, right? That's from that school of thought as well. I don't believe that. You might have heard the mark of the beast. What is that? That's a, obviously a computer chip in the hand or a barcode on the forehead, right? Okay, now tell me how that would be applicable at all in the first century. I don't know. Um, that's not what that is. We'll get to this stuff, right? I just like to increase either the the anticipation. Or the hostility, I'm not sure. <laughs> a literal seven-year tribulation. There's a rapture in seven-year tribulation. Also, not a thing. Okay. Or the thought that Revelation, the book of Revelation is a book about the end times, and the end times means future. All of that is wrapped in to that way of thinking about the Bible and about the book of Revelation from the 1870s and beyond, mostly in this country. Most... Uh, I'm not trying to alienate, and I do think that the folks who who kind of have, have promoted that have a very high view of Scripture, and a lot of times in the fundamentalist, modernist controversy, sorry, I know that's lost on most of you, in the early 20th century, it was those same people who held to the doctrine of the Word of God, I'm very thankful, but something else got smuggled in with that. These are the same types of things that are displayed if you've read the, uh, anybody here read any of the books of the Left Behind series or seen the movies? Those high, you know, value movies, right? That's what's displayed in there. It's good fiction. That's what it is. Um, almost nearly every TV prophecy preacher on cable TV, this is the view that's promoted. I just want you to understand, it's so new in church history and relatively isolated, Okay. So, again, people who who love Jesus have a high value of the Word of God, but uh, my concern is we've taken this beautiful and powerful book of Revelation and sort of begun to use it as a manual for, for unlocking these secret keys of information. Or a manual for avoiding the problems instead of what it is, which is designed to be a companion for God's people to shepherd us through difficulty. That's what it was meant to be. that's why we are blessed when we read it and hear it and do it. It is this power that brings us hope and and a resilient faithfulness. It's the way of the God's people of a sort of a you know Odysseus when they were going through the by the island of the sirens, he lashed himself to the mast. This is the power of lashing ourselves to the mast in that way. Or old captains in a storm would have their, their wheelmen lashed to the wheel so they wouldn't let go so they could steer through the storm. That's the effect. That's what the book of Revelation has done for the people of God in history. And I want to encourage us to see it that way for us today. So uh, we're going to look at the first of the... What happens after Revelation 5, we saw last week, Jesus, the Lamb, takes the scroll of history and it's sealed with seven seals. We think of those as like wax signet ring impressions that would seal the scroll. And the Lamb begins to open them. And with each successive seal that's opened, a new vision, a new picture appears to the Apostle John of something that's going to happen or is happening in history. And I want to alert you. I put on the back of your... Uh, insert, a little s- diagram at the bottom, sort of the structure, the literary structure of the seals in Revelation 6-1 to 8-1. And so when we're going through Revelation, we want you to understand how to read it a little more fully as well. So some of Revelation is future, but a lot of it, it displays d- dynamics of what's been happening and is happening in history. So the, f- the first five seals are sort of c- capturing dynamics that have happened since Time of John and our happening right now. We'll get into that. And then we do have a final judgment and then heaven's response of silence. And we saw a couple weeks ago, the iter- Revelation gives iterative cycles of this. So this is the same language in the seals and then in the trumpets and then in the bowls, right? So there's, it keeps showing the same thing from different angles over and over again. So what we're about to see in these visions, just because they come to John successively doesn't mean they're like sequentially in history. It means John's limited. He can only see one thing at a time. So movies do this all the way. Uh, There's a movie a couple years ago called Knives Out with Daniel Craig. Not our Daniel Craig, but the other (laughs) Daniel Craig. The lesser known Daniel Craig was in the movie. where they show uh, a crime happening from a perspective and then from a different perspective and then from a different perspective. No perspective is lying, but you don't get the full picture to get all the perspectives. That's what's happening in seals one, two, three, four, and five. Your first four seals do this, and then a fifth gives a perspective on the same thing. So we're going to read together, and in your insert where it's bold, I want to invite you to read. Now, there was going to be more when we were going through Revelation 6 and 7, but just to keep you engaged a little bit. So if you look at the... You don't have much to say in the first couple seals. I know that. But here we go. Revelation 6, 1 and 2. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Nice. And I looked, and behold, a white horse... And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So I want to mention here at the beginning that what's revealed in these horses, we're going to see four horses, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I should have had the Johnny Cash song playing before the service. I really wanted to do that, and I forgot to tell Matt. Um, This is destruction of different kinds. But something very subtle is said, or rather not said, in these four, uh, the four announcements. Many theologians point this out, that it's very subtle to say, to show that the, the call comes from the throne room, the four living creatures, but not from the one on the throne. As if to say, this is destruction and judgment, and it's a It's driven by a lot of evil and selfishness of man and and the brokenness of this world. It's as if to say God is actually sovereign over these things. He's actually governing this, but he's not authoring it. He's governing it and sovereign over this destruction. He is using it. He is permitting it. He is allowing it, but he is not authoring it. So we could, say, we could say it comes from his hand, but only in that his hand is permitting it. God is not the source of the evil and destruction, but he is using it to his own ends and even able to work good in it. Now, that is beyond us, right? That's beyond our mind. How can God be sovereign over something he's not authoring? That concept, how can we, how can we act on something we don't understand? We, we use this all the time in our life. I was reading an article, There's a Worm called C. elegans. C, the letter C, and elegans. It is about one millimeter long. and It is an incredibly simple organism. It's one of the simplest organisms we've studied. We've mapped its DNA, big deal. We know all the neurons in its brain. There are 300 neurons, only 300 neurons, in the brain of C. elegans. And we have no idea how the brain works in this little worm that's one millimeter long. I was reading a theoretical mathematician recently that said, said uh, we w- with all our learning, we have, uh, he used very colorful language, no idea how C. elegans works. And it's got 300 neurons. The human brain has 100 billion neurons. This means that there is no reasonable hope we have in our lifetime or probably any lifetimes of comprehensively understanding how the human brain works. We can't understand the, we can't exhaust our understanding of it, but we know that it does. Right? It re- we're dependent on what it reveals to us. Like, oh, here's the speech center. Oh, here's the, the center for, for hearing. And so we can do an implant, a cochlear implant that connects to this part in the brain. We know that, but we don't know how it works. Nobody actually knows how it works, but because it's shown itself to us that it works in this way, we're like, okay, we'll take what we've got and work with it. Right? We don't understand how God can be sovereign over something but not author it, but what he's revealed to us is that's exactly the case. Right? and I would suggest there's probably more, even more distance between us and the infinite, eternally omniscient and eternal God than there is between us and C. Elegance. But uh, we, we're willing to take what we understand about the brain and use it, and it's revealed to us. The Scripture reveals this to us. God is sovereign, and this evil seems to be running unchecked and chaotically in the world, and yet he's sovereign over it and didn't author it. Now, these four horses. uh, We we don't just make up what they mean. We're going to get the information from somewhere. Now you've been here a couple weeks. You know where's the first place we look for interpreting the Book of Revelation. The Old Testament. Is there any place in the Old Testament where you have four horses in any kind of judgment? Answer, yes, in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 6. In fact, you have chariots drawn by horses that have four colors, very similar to the four colors here, including red, white, and black. The fourth horse is a different color. Uh, But they, they go out symbolically to announce judgment, to bring judgment on the nations that oppress God's people, and yes, they all ride out at the same time. The picture of horses for judgment makes sense, right? Not because horses are bad and evil, but because they carry powerful agents. So that's the, the picture. Seal one is the white horse. The white horse and a rider. Now, in Revelation 19, you have another white horse and rider who is Jesus. This is not Jesus. This might be, as you pick up, we may do a separate sermon on this. We'll see. There's so many sermons in Revelation that are coming, apparently, um, There's this theme that gets pulled through Revelation of imitation and counterfeit. Uh, That you have the, the unholy Trinity. With Satan, the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea. The beast of the sea has a mortal wound. He was dead, but now he's healed. Does that sound like anybody? That sounds like the lamb who had a mortal wound but was resurrected. You have uh, the mark of the beast is 666, very close to the number of perfection, 777. That is he's counterfeiting. It could be this one who rides on a white horse in Revelation 19 it is Jesus is counterfeited by this other conqueror in seal number one, the, the white horse but it signifies conquering. The writer came out conquering and to conquer. There are those in history, either people or people groups, who seek to exert destructive power over other people and other people groups in a conquering fashion. In the first century, this would have been Domitian, the emperor, and the Roman Empire. They exercised conquering power over other peoples. And it was destructive if you were one of the other peoples. In history, we know names like Genghis Khan, right? Genghis Khan, the, 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 the Mongol marauder who conquered, this is amazing, on horseback. <laughs> Something greater than the size of the United States and Mexico together. But conquering is so common, we kind of just, they, they all fade into the background. Anybody ever heard of Timur the Conqueror? some of you know, 14th century Asian conqueror who conquered a a geography 60 times the size of Indiana and was responsible in his lifetime for the death of 5% of the world's population. And it's so common, we're like, yeah, I'm not sure who that guy was. It's wild. This is the, you know, the, the pole pots of history the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Idi Amins, the Chairman Mao's, sometimes the British imperialists, and yes, even sometimes the way this country was founded, conquering and destroying those who were here before, who sometimes conquered those who were before them. It's just the dynamic of one people conquering another and bringing death and destruction. And it has multiple expressions in history because it's a dynamic, if you will, that's always riding through history. That horse is riding. And it has multiple manifestations. In our day, we might look to Boko Haram. It's in a different hemisphere, so we hardly think about it. If we were in North Africa, we would think about it. It is, it is embodied in the action right now of Russia and Vladimir Putin, right? Um, now you would say, am I saying that Vladimir Putin is the rider on the white horse? No. He is a, the, an expression of that, one of multiple expressions in history. Now perhaps the, the horse is also white because to some those conquerors also always look like heroes, if, you're, if, if that's on your side, you're like, yeah. In fact, when I said even the founding of this com- country, it was like that, some of you bristled, probably. Why? Because your identity is a little too tied to this country, probably. But um, conquerors often look heroic. Why? It's counterfeit. That's, why. Uh, that's the why. That's seal number one. These are things riding through history. Bringing destruction, that's not the way it ought to be. That's not God, the way God had created the world to be originally. That's correct. And in even its conquering, God is bringing about his purposes. It, they, those horses don't get to ride forever. Seal number two. Let's do this again. Verse 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. If the first horse was the dynamic of one people group conquering another people group, the second horse is the dynamic of people groups or communities, however defined, conquering themselves. Violence turning against people in your own community, however you want to define that community. That could be civil wars. Right? We've experienced that in this country. And last year, Taylor did not go to Ethiopia. He was planning on going to Ethiopia to visit our partner church, Trinity Fellowship in Addis Ababa, but he couldn't because there was a civil war going on and it was so dangerous that the senior pastor, Michael, sent his wife, Kanan, and their kids to the States. And He stayed. It was so, think about, like, you've never, think about sending your family away because they might die. Taylor was with those guys a couple weeks ago. The Civil Wars died down a little bit. But that's what's going on uh, in North Africa, not so much uh, Ethiopia right now, but it was. Note here that the writer was permitted, not commissioned, but permitted He's permitted to take peace from the earth. Civil wars. This is what happens in our inner city neighborhoods. What happens in Central and South American drug cartels when people are in your own village, your own family, either through addiction or through violence. This is violence that invades families and family units. Be that in violence or abuse of any kind. Some of you have, expre- have experienced the expression of that red horse in your life, in your own family. It's not the way it ought to be. But that horse doesn't get to ride forever. Verse 5. Let's read 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine." So the writer has a pair of scales in his hands that's measuring something. What is he measuring? The the wheat. Measure the wheat. Why? Because it's so expensive now. A denarius was like a day's wage or approximately uh, a quart of wheat is what you could eat for a day, or three quarts of barley would be for a day. So here's the upshot of that. That's roughly 16 to 20 times the normal price of things. For staple items like wheat and barley. So I just did a little research this week. If you shop at Kroger and buy Kroger brand, that's the equivalent of a loaf of Kroger brand wheat bread being $31. Of milk being $42 a gallon, Kroger, non-organic. Of hamburger, 80%, hamburger being $80 a pound. Eggs being $57 a dozen and a three pound bag of Fuji apples being $84. If you say, if I was in that case, I would just live on you know, basic white rice, fine. That's only $27 for a small bag. You see, wow, that's exorbitant pricing. That is hyperinflation. That's right. The wine and the oil weren't touched. Those were luxury items. Now, I have to go back and say, in that time, wine and oil relatively were more expensive than they are today. So you've got to think, no wine, there's no $3, 3 buck chuck, right? Every wine equivalently would be like 30 bucks today, right? Um, they don't go up in price, the wine and the oil. The only people who could still have afforded the wine and the oil were the very wealthy who could also afford to buy bread for $31 a loaf, right? So now it's easy to think in America, for almost all of our existence, probably for all of our existence, that this, oh, this must be something that's off in the future because we've never seen anything like that. I mean, the worst we've ever seen is, well, inflation in the last year has been 8.8%, and it seems like this is ridiculous, this is crazy. In the last year in Turkey, re- inflation's been 83%. In Zimbabwe, 269%. I bet it's not so hard for them to believe this is something that's riding through their history right now. And probably in Turkey and Zimbabwe, the rich are still eating just fine. Right? That's not a that's it's not a necessarily uh, a call to blame the rich, but it's a, it's a disparity. Wait, this isn't the way it ought to be exactly. And this horse doesn't ride forever. Scarcity is what we're looking at here, not the way it ought to be. Okay. Now the fourth horse, verse seven and eight together. Uh, Well, you you read your part, short though it may be. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. The pale horse, probably the color of death that most scholars think that's an ashen, like a gray, greenish gray, right? This is sort of the junk drawer horse, kind of everything else that I haven't talked about yet. But actually, sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast. beast is actually a four-part formula of judgment from, guess where? The Old Testament, right? It's in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Those four things show up all the time for judgments on idolatry. Sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast. They're all together. You can go back and look at that. Uh, some of these are related to the f- first couple seals, one, two, and, you know, one, two, and three, sword and famine. But then you have pestilence. We just saw an example of the fourth horse ride through this world a couple of years ago and still riding, COVID. It is an expression of that fourth seal. Wild beasts could be animals, in the rest of Revelation, beasts are demonic, uh, uh, demonic forces. We don't know. A uh, couple things here. First, many of these things often work together in combination for destruction in this earth. So right now, let's just talk right now. This is happening all through history, modern expressions. Russia conquering fuels inflation in the world. Right. Why? Because Ukraine creates a whole bunch of grain for Europe and Russian oil and gas has gone sky high. And it's just this evil and destruction tend to work in concert with one another to make life hard in this earth. We've seen the economic challenge that COVID brought, the continued lockdowns in China. It's a weird cycle, have gotten the Sri Lankan economy on the brink of collapse because they're so dependent on China for so many of their goods. It's like evil is uh, it's a system that gets interlocked, and we don't know how it works until something happens and it just all explodes. Secondly, God hasn't authored any of this. It's the effect of living in a broken world. It often rides on the pride and arrogance and destructive idolatry of man. Yet in God's infinite wisdom, he's able to use this as warning and judgment against people. In Revelation 9, in the trumpets, there's a comment that said, and yet they did not repent. (laughs) Even seeing all this judgment, they did not repent or cease from their idolatry. The purpose of the judgment was to bring people to an end of themselves and say, oh my goodness, Look at how much destruction we humans can do. We need a rescuer. We need somebody who can change our character. We need to look outside of us. And sometimes people do, and sometimes people don't. Extreme distress tends to harden or soften people. We often see it. We see extreme distress, where that happens to you or in this world, hardening people. When people blame God for the evil in this world, that is a hardening effect of sin. We see it uh, at the cross in Luke 23. Two criminals crucified with Jesus. They're under distress, right? They're being crucified. One mocks Christ and one asks for, asks for grace. One mocks God and one sees himself and his need of God. Extreme distress tends to harden us or soften us. Rarely does it leave us where we are. How is that operated in your own life? We don't have to respond well to distress. We can let it harden us. The invitation is to let, us, let it drive us to Jesus. So f- the first four pictures are kind of dreary. <laughs> you have this destruction that's in the earth that God is permitting. It's spreading, but that's not the only thing that's spreading. What's also spreading is the conquering gospel. The gospel's going out into the earth. What happens when you have destruction going out in the earth and the gospel creating converts? You have martyrs. Look at verse, look at uh, the next verse. Verse nine. Let's read this nine through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Lord, holy and true, how long will judge and our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers or brothers and sisters should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. During all this time, so remember, this is is church history, right? This this is from the, the ascension of Christ on to today until the return of Christ, or the time between the two advents that we're celebrating here. You have those who have followed Jesus who suffer persecution because of the two things mentioned here. They're unswerving allegiance to the Word of God as authority over and against all other authorities, and their witness, in that context would have been the witness to the Lordship of Christ over all earthly powers. Now, if you give yourselves to submission to the Word of God against all other authority and the Lordship of Christ over all earthly powers, you're eventually going to run afoul of those authorities and earthly powers. Sometimes it's extreme. Sometimes it's even martyrdom. And probably those... Slain here means put to death, but in Revelation it can also mean general persecution. So, we're not we definitely means put to death. It may also mean general persecution. But what's revealed in, in to John as the fifth seal is opened is that there are those who got caught up in the evil in this earth, and it ran against them, and they have suffered persecution. For the word of God in their testimony. And now they are safe. They're under the altar. That means in God's presence, under his protection. And they say, O oh, sovereign Lord. So they have vantage point. We see that you are permitting these riders to ride. But how long, O oh Lord? We see our brothers and sisters being persecuted and slain for their faith. How long will you let this go on? And the the implied question is, will this go on forever? And the answer is no. No. There is a number that I know that you do not know. And when that number is complete, this will come to an end. It's... There is a way. Most parents know this. You go on vacation. Literally one time, we were heading to Florida on vacation, and we hit the exit ramp at Washington Street and 465, and we had a kid say, are we almost there yet? <laughs> and we say, of course, as good parents, almost. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> no. No. But we will be. One day we will be there yet. We will be there then. And I know to you, kid, in the back seat, cramped in a minivan, every road looks like every other road. And it's true, road after road after road. But we know where we're going. And one day one road that looks like all the other roads will be the last one and then we will be there. And that's what this is saying. Yes, destruction runs wild in this earth, but not permanently. And it's not unchecked. The Lord does government, govern it, and he has his people in his hand. And he is not unaware of the suffering. In fact, those who have passed on, those who have been brought through that suffering are protected by him. And he says, right now, I want you to rest. Put on a white robe, the righteous robe of Jesus, and, and rest. You are uh, you're in a complete state, but it's a temporary state. It's, it, you saw it's the souls of those under the altar. That's a temporary state. It is people awaiting the resurrection of the body and the future and the the renewal of all things. So it's a restful state, but it's a temporary state. And if we are, if if Christ does not return uh, before we die, when you're in Christ, you die in Christ, you enter into that temporary state, awaiting the, the, the reunification of soul with body and the restoration of all things. So those five seals are happening. We say concurrently through history, interacting with each other. But some of Revelation is yet future, including the sixth seal. And remember, we say this comes and goes. So we're gonna you see the the this is a final judgment, the sixth seal. It's in the, It's in the seals. There's a final judgment in the trumpets. There's a final judgment in the bulls. Just because we're seeing the same thing from multiple angles. What happens here is all the prophetic imagery. From Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and Habakkuk of judgment is picked up and like compressed together and dropped in one spot. And again, this is language that happens several times in Revelation because we keep coming back to it. The four horses don't ride forever. Destruction, evil, idolatry, rebellion against the Lord is not indefinite. Um. Let me just... Read Isaiah 34 if you want a little, a little slice of some of this rich Old Testament language. But hear these words and actually respond back where appropriate. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The, the, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to earth as, fig, as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling on the mountains and the rocks... Who is the Lamb? Jesus. Who can stand? No one. There will come a day that is the last day. When all things are laid bare, and there is no place to hide for those who are not hidden in Christ. And this gentle babe, meek and mild, that we celebrate the coming of Christmas, is the Lamb who brings wrath who destroys destruction in this final seal. Evil does not win. Idolatry and rebellion does not go on forever. The work of Jesus is vindicated. His people are protected and finally redeemed and restored on a renewed earth. Now we can see how this would be helpful to God's people through the ages. Now we live we have mercifully missed a lot of this. If you saw in the the four seal it only had authority to to touch a fourth of the earth kind of communicating there's a limited aspect to that in God's providence in our short time on this earth in geography in North America a lot of that has missed us kind of we don't know if that will always be the case probably not but it has but we don't want to be we don't want to fall into the illusion that well that must be all off in the future just look around at our brothers and sisters in this globe but also The threat of persecution can function just like persecution in somebody's life. The threat of persecution can lead to a compromise of the Word of God, not holding to the Word of God, twisting it, adjusting it, making it more palatable to the world, or forsaking it altogether. A threat of persecution can lead to us not holding to the witness of Christ, that He is the Lord above all things, that His opinion is more important than all things than that of our friends, than that of our politicians, our entertainers, and even our parents. That threat of, of reprisal on that can make us tempted to let go. And that's where we need to allow revelation to come and set its seat in our hearts and our imagination and say, we are held safe. We're held safe by the Lamb. God delivers his people in and through destruction. Sometimes he preserves us from it. He always preserves us in it, and he'll always bring it through us. And, guys, he went first. Jesus went first. As he faced the full force of one empire in the Roman Empire trying to destroy him, as he faced the full force of his own people trying to destroy him, and as he quotes Psalm 22 from the cross, which says, wild animals are around me to destroy me, he went first for us. So that we would know that he holds us tightly in him. So that whatever thing may come, we can endure in hopeful faithfulness. We can see evil in this world and say, ah, I see you, first horse, second horse, you know, red horse, white horse, black horse, pale horse. And you may may ride over me. You may ride over us. I don't know. But I know at the end, I will stand on the earth with my Lord and all will be made new. If you have that hope in you because of the gospel, we want to invite you to the communion table. This is the tangible, tasteable sensation that you are held tight by the Lamb. Let me pray, and I'll invite you to the table. Lord, we are loved by you, preserved by you, and in your sovereign care. Sometimes you let let the destruction...